0: I carry on thinking a little bit about the Magnificat this morning, and I'm going to lighten up a bit today. Right? It's two weeks ago, it was like a whole thing about Roman Catholic theology. Last week, I tried to describe the human person. Do you have a soul and a spirit and a body, or just a soul and a body? And So today, you can just relax a little bit. I'll be shorter. And uh, we'll just meditate a little on the Magnificat. Um, A question that has been asked by those who study the New Testament is, um, where did Mary get the Magnificat from? Where did a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old young girl learn such great theology, and uh, where did she get this amazing experience with God that she could talk to God about things that are massive, things that are beyond her understanding? And it's been noticed that the New Testament and the Old Testament very many times mirror each other. And if, if you're looking for sort of a, a gradual journey through the Bible, the, the central, central focus of the whole Bible is the person of Jesus. And so through the Old Testament, we have um, the stories of Old Testament saints and events and pictures images that are pointing forward to Jesus, and then we get to the Gospels, and we have the very life of Jesus, and then we have the rest of the New Testament that sort of glances back at Jesus. And in the middle of it all, the New Testament, as it um, becomes fuller and fuller, has ways of explaining the Old Testament, and we then read the Old Testament with sort of a Aha! Understanding where we, we say well, what we first of all read as a story and couldn't understand, now we see that interpreted through the lens of Jesus at the center and then explained in the New Testament, we see how it all fits together. And that becomes an argument for the Christian faith is the way that the Bible, uh, written over so many centuries and written uh, by so many people and in so many background cultures and so on, has a a cohesion to it that is is beyond human reasoning. Um, You would have to have been a brilliant person to concoct the Bible uh, because it just evidently uh, sort of is like that 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 lovely piece of needlework that you're looking at the back of it and see all you know a rogue threads all over the place. But when you turn it around, you say, "Oh my goodness, look at the picture that's being presented here." And that's what the Bible um, sort of appears to be, in in my experience. So when we think about the Magnificat. And just wonder about the question, well, where did Mary get this from? I want to take you back long before the story of Mary and tell you another story about a woman. And it's a very similar story. And at the end, you'll probably understand why I'm, I'm just reminding you about that story. There was a man called Elkanah. He had a wife called Hannah. And he had another wife as well, Peninnah, but we don't like her very much. So you can go back to First Samuel and read the story. And... This man was a very faithful worshiper. So every year he went to Shiloh, which was one of the sites of worship for Israel. And he went with his wife and his other wife, Peninnah, and her family of kids that that came with them. Hannah – and here's where you begin to wonder about how you understand what the Bible is saying – it, it says the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, and so Hannah was not able to have children. And the larger theological question there is about God closing her womb and how intricately is God involved in that kind of a thing? But what made matters worse was that Peninnah mocked Anna, Hannah, because she couldn't have children. I mean, you can imagine the the nasty, merciless taunting went on and it is it's it's proven by the fact that Hannah found herself weeping bitterly and praying to God in absolute desperation about this plight that she is in her husband Elkanah said why why don't you just you know in a sense get over this am I not better for you than ten children and he's trying to say, I don't need you to have children. that, and, and I want to be for you the kind of husband I should be. But she, um, in in one event in which she was there in Shiloh, um, after a meal, during which Penina presumably had been taunting her as usual, uh, Hannah finally got up. And she made her way to the house of the Lord. And Eli the priest. Um, his two sons were the the um, working priests in Shiloh. Uh, Eli I guess saw her coming and realized that she had been at a meal, had some sort of a banquet meal and Hannah was so distressed that she was not saying anything out loud but she was just like muttering. Her, her lips were moving and inside she was a broken person in turmoil. And Eli, if you know about Eli, he's not the smartest priest around, right? So Eli thinks she's drunk. And he says, come on, why don't you quit being drunk and coming to the house of the Lord like this? And she said, no, I, I'm not drunk. I'm broken hearted because I've been asking the Lord for a child and he's not given me one. And In the drama of all of this we're told about the prayer that Hannah prays to God and out of this desperation she prays and says if you would only give me a child I will give my child back to you and the promise that she made was the promise of a Nazarite vow that when the child would be born he would um, abstain from certain things and would be given to the service of the temple and would live his life serving God. Hannah said, God, sovereign God, if you would answer my prayer and give me a son, I will give my son back to you. In fact, then she did have a son and the the, the narrative tells us that the Lord opened her womb and she was good for her promise and went back to Eli after the child had been weaned and said, I'm, I'm the woman you thought was drunk. Uh, and the Lord has heard my prayer, answered my prayer. And my son Samuel is yours for the service of God. Uh, he will live his life under this vow uh, in, in my worship to God who has heard my prayer and answered my prayer. It's a lovely story, and theologically it's a story that that mirrors the New Testament. Um, Samuel was one who would be in the line of prophets and and significantly part of God's drama with Israel. And Samuel came as a miraculous birth in sort of a... um, Sort of a shadow ahead of time of the possibility of a miraculous birth. Um, it wasn't the only time that happened. There were some other, you know, folks well on in ages, age like Sarah and Abraham and and, and the like. But Samuel was a son of promise, uh, a son that was dedicated to the Lord. And later on, we we come across another woman who has a son miraculously born, miraculously conceived in fact and that brings us back to the story of the Magnificat. But if you go home and just read the first few chapters of Samuel you'll come across the prayer that Hannah prayed and it's uncanny to notice that the prayer that she prayed was pretty much like the prayer Mary prayed. Uh, In fact, I have a – you won't be able to read everything that's in front of you here, but here's the the Song of Hannah in one column and the Song of Mary in another column. And sort of item by item, you can compare the way that they really are mirroring each other, which, again, is an interesting note when we try to understand what the Bible is, what the nature of the Bible is, that some things that were written thousands of years apart – could actually be really consistent and really rhyme with each other. Uh, so it, it would really appear that the song that Mary sang was a song that Mahana sang. Um, where she learned it probably was the synagogue, where she was listening to the readings of scripture. And um, in, in societies where there's a, uh, a high level of Ill- illiteracy, Oftentimes, there's a high level of, of comprehension. Um, over the years, there were a few of us teaching some um, pastors in Uganda um, who were uneducated pastors in the sense that they'd not been to school or they'd not been past just a few years of, of early elementary school. And their capacity to grasp was phenomenal. It was beyond mine and the others that were there with me teaching where we would give them exercises, and they in just in in conversation at tables, they would go to levels of understanding that were profound. They were able to perceive truth, um, not because they learned how to write and spell and and put it down on paper, but because uh, w- when the way that they were learning was a different way than ours. Um, not to say that um, ours isn't a tremendous gift in in the whole Western world. Um, But Mary, as a young girl, apparently had quite a capacity for remembering Scripture, remembering the stories. And maybe Hannah was her, her hero somehow or other. And so when she wanted to respond to what God was doing for her, she remembered a song. She remembered a song from the Old Testament scriptures, and she sang that song. Um, not verbatim, but she sang it idea by idea. Uh, not in the same language, because it would have been in Hebrew, and hers would probably been in Aramaic. Um, but enough of the song uh, showed up in Mary's song that it was offered now, as, again, a song of worship to God. Here, here's what she sang. And uh, I've taken off the uh, soul uh, magnifying and the spirit rejoicing and some of the other parts. And here, here's at, at the heart of the song. He has had regard for the humble state of his slave. For, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. As we, on our Christian journey, um, strive to understand um, who God is, what God is, what God's attributes are, what God's characteristics are, We are on a steep learning curve that just goes on getting steeper and steeper, appropriately so, because we never ought to claim that we know what God is like. We never ought to claim that we grasp God. We must always, every time that we learn something new, roll that back into the things that we think we have learned before, and then say, now what else am I supposed to know and learn? One of the great errors of theological education is reductionism, where we take things that we know and write them down in books and in texts and say, there, done. And you can't get God that way. Like the old story about the little boy in Sunday school, um, his teacher said, what are you drawing? And he said, God. And the teacher said, nobody knows what God looks like. And the student said, they can have a look once I finish the picture. That's what we do, though, isn't it? Once we get some familiarity with God, we say, there it is. That's what God is like. And while God has reduced himself in a very gracious way in the person of Jesus, where he has said, you actually can understand God by understanding Jesus but it's not a full understanding of God because um, God is beyond invisible and, and, um incomprehensible. He's, he's so much more. And so we keep on learning and we keep on pressing in uh, to learn what else there is to know about God. The one thing that we are able to do, and I think what the Bible advises us to do, is to look at what God has done. And if you read the Psalms... Um, you will hear the psalmist exhort us to give thanks to the Lord and praise to the Lord for the things he has done. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is in with all within me. Bless his holy name. He has done great things. And so the great things that God has done, um, the record of which is the whole testimony of Scripture, um, Those are glimpses into what God is like. They're sometimes confusing and seem even to be contradictory glimpses. But every time we see God doing something, it's like we need to say, "Ah, God did this. Why did God do this? What has God told us about why he did this or why he would do this? Why did God do this and not that? Why did God not do? And, and so we're in our heads wondering, but in our hearts and in our spirits, we're, we're trying to grasp what it is that what God has done shows about what God is like. It, it gets right down to brass tacks for us, right? Where we talked a while ago about the the idea that our, our talk talks and our walk talks, but our walk talks louder than our talk talks. God's walk um, speaks volumes about who he is because it shows us what he does. And we're able to refer back to things. And that's what the the Israelites did time after time, um, where we have the great prayers um, of of the prophets saying, Lord, in ancient times, you did this, you did this, you did this. Um, You rolled the sea back. Will you not do again what you did before when you did it for us before? So there's a a great history in the Bible of watching what God does and then saying to God, well, if that's what you did, could that be what you will do for us now? Because that showed us your faithfulness then, and we need to see your faithfulness now. When we look at what God has done, then we... Give praise to him and just say, this is what you did. On a daily basis, as I suggested to you in the morning, we need to start with a commitment to God's covenant loyalty and say, today I believe that you will be loyal to your covenant, your promises to me. At the end of the day, um, we will remind God of his faithfulness. We can say, through the day, you were faithful to me indeed. And so that's what one of the Psalms counsels us, that in the morning we should Talk about his chesed, as we said. And in the evening, we should reflect on his faithfulness. What is it that God did yesterday? What is it that God did last week? What is it that God did last year? And as we make a note of that, we say, this is what God did. Maybe he will do that again. Maybe he will do more than that. Maybe that was for then, but not for now. But all of it is in this wondrous journey of discovery about the nature and the, the activity of God. In the prayer that Mary prays, there are three, I think, simple things that, that emerge, which are similar to the prayer that Hannah prayed. And they are in, in the realm of subjects where we need to go, oh, yeah, I should, I should remember that. Why do I keep forgetting that? So here they are. First of all, God sovereignly answers fervent prayer. Um now that is that's a statement full of of um, of energy and confusion and hope and all at the same time. But the story of Hannah and the story of Mary is a story that says God does answer fervent prayer. Here's Hannah. Um, and fervent prayer is desperate prayer for her. She is beside herself um over the anxiety with not having a child and being mocked for not having a child, and she's fervent to the point that she is just so consumed with her prayer that she she just her it's just her lips move, um, and the, the fullness of the prayer is in her heart. Um, God sovereignly answers fervent prayer. One of the great sort of in a sense happy dilemmas of the Christian life is that we 're never sure when God will or won 't answer prayer. We know that he does um, we also know that sometimes he doesn 't or says "Wait or or says That's, that that wasn 't the right thing to ask for just shape shape your prayer a little differently. Um, But God is sovereign concerning our prayers. The story of of our human existence is a story of our brokenness. And the, the story of prayer is the way in the middle of our brokenness we try to find sense in our lives. Where in the middle of our brokenness we know that God has done the thing that was necessary for the end to come that is perfect. And in the meantime, we're stuck in the mess we made, and God's in the middle of the mess with us. And sometimes, He intervenes. Sometimes, sovereignly, He will do something. And oftentimes, people can kind of discern that the times that God intervened, they seem to be times where it was sort of moving the ball down the field significant things were happening and it was necessary for God to intervene and and to do something. So many times um, people will pray for things and we will join them in prayer and sometimes God answers those prayers and sometimes he doesn't or doesn't answer them in the way that we would love him to answer them or expect him to answer them. But it is his sovereignty that says, Hannah, you're not to have a child until after Hannah intercedes and God says, you may have a child. It'll be part of my sovereign plan to use your child, namely Samuel. The, the second thing that I think we learn in the prayers of Hannah and, and um, Mary are that God exalts the humble. And that's one of the things that you say, oh yeah, yeah, I keep on forgetting that. But it does. Um, The story of Hannah, the story of Mary, um, are both stories of humility. And we don't have to go so far in the Bible to understand that God really, really understands and exalts the humble. God resists the proud but he exalts the humble um, and when god moves his story forward you're better to look in in the corner where unimportant people or unimportant events apparently seem to be going on because that that's where he is where would you go and look for a king well if you go you know according to wisdom of the day You would go to find out, well, where's this king supposed to be born? Where's the palace? Because we need to go and worship him as well. Well, would you expect a king to be born in a feeding trough? Would you expect the king um, to be born to parents who, well, they didn't have deodorant, I guess. Yeah, you know. Uh, Would you expect that? Absolutely not. I mean, could we reasonably believe that a, a child. Born illegitimately to a young girl from Galilee, no less, is a king? Not unless you think, oh, no, what's the way the world would think or what's the way that we would think in our brilliance? And then go to the other direction because God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. And so every time we, we try to have a conversation with God, we need to hear him saying, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't think the way I do. I don't think the way you do. And your wisdom is foolishness to me. And sometimes my wisdom looks like foolishness to you. That's the deal. So get it through your thick skull that God is for the humble, He's for the poor. He's for the widows. He's for the orphans. He's on the side of the oppressed. In the events in our world today, he's on the side of people who are starving. He's on the side of people who fear for their lives. He's on the side of orphans um, and the sick and the dying. He's on their side. Do we always understand why he doesn't have something happen that, that will will make it better and make it right? Someone has said, you know, I, I said to God, why don't you do something about that? And God said back, well, I have the same question. Why don't you do something about that? And we know that that's what we're called to. But but do we understand that God exalts the humble? Um The way up is the way down, not in a sort of a business smart approach to things, but in honest, real facts. Um, When you think too much of yourself, you're thinking too much of yourself. Um, My mom would just say to me, you are too big for your boots. And she was right. Because God exalts the humble when we get to the point that we think there's, there's, there's no farther down than this, then God says, right. So you're right where you should be if you want me to use you. And honestly, we might struggle with that and say, I don't think I'm ready for that. I'm, I'm not ready to be emptied. I'm not ready to die to myself. I'm not ready to give up things. And God will say, okay. But you do know that I exalt the humble. And and that's what Mary's saying. She said, he has seen the humble state of his bondservant. He's seen the fact that I am the least in the least in the land, um, in the least admirable circumstances, um, and he's exalted me. And then God devalues power and wealth. That's what both Hannah and Mary sang about. We don't. We still are impressed by power and wealth and we still feel that power and wealth are the means to accomplish good things. Now this is not to despise power or wealth. Um, this morning as we talk about our financial resources, we are stewards of our wealth so we do not despise wealth. But we need to have the right value on wealth. We need to have the right price in in our lives about wealth. And power is a dangerous, dangerous commodity. And when we use it, um, we need to use it very carefully, making sure that we eke out of our hearts the pride um, that power can have as its ugly um, co-conspirator. We we don't discern that easily. Um, We think getting to be in charge, we think getting control, we think getting power is good, and it, it can be good if we are the humble bearers of that power, which becomes a bit of a... Conundrum, isn't it? How, how, how do you become uh, powerfully humble? How do, be, how do you become wealthily humble? It is absolutely possible. There are people I know to whom God has entrusted wealth because he knows he can trust them. There are people that I know that to whom God has entrusted power because he knows that he will be able to use them as they use their, their power with their wealth. One of the most powerful people in, in our lifetime has been Billy Graham. And one time, um, Cliff Barrows, who was his compatriot for years and years, Cliff was asked, why God blessed Billy Graham so much with so much influence and so much you know, um, impact around the world? And Cliff Barrows said, because I think in Mr. Graham, God found someone he could trust. And in these days of the tumble of many leaders, um, his reputation has outlasted his life. And we still look back and say, yeah, I think in Mr. Graham, God found someone that he could trust. Does he find me, you, to be that sort of person? Because God's not so impressed by power per se or by wealth per se. And Hannah says, yeah, he has turned things upside down. In that respect. And Mary says, yeah, he has turned things upside down. And yet in our world, um, we find that our humanness uh, just doesn't get it right sometimes. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Why? Because of what God has done. What has God done? What would your litany be? of uh, the lines that should go in your song when you write your song. That your soul magnifies the Lord because your spirit rejoices in God your Savior. He who is mighty has done great things. He has what in your life, in the lives of those around you. Join with Mary and join with Hannah in their prayers.